In this episode of 92Y Talks, American rock legends Don Henley and Billy Joel come together on one stage to discuss their esteemed careers and longtime friendships. The two exchange thoughts on songwriting, record do-overs, why Dolly Parton is a superhero, and Henley's new solo album, Cass County. The conversation was recorded on September 20th, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Uh, we have known each other now since the uh, early 70s, I believe. Yep. Um, I opened up for Don at uh, University of California at Berkeley, about 73 or 74. Mm-hmm, 74, I think. These are the days when the Eagles were all wearing the Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> and uh, I was a fan of the band, uh, adamant fan, and I thought I'd get to meet the songwriters. And they just took off after the gig. And, I never met any of them, but I, we did get into contact with each other eventually. Yep. So it all worked out pretty well. Um, now, I've never done this before. <laughs> I'm not Howard Stern. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he, he's a friend, so I, I don't want to say, you know, ask you anything that'll make you pissed off at me. <laughs> um, I just want, these are questions I wanted to ask you. Your own original material is so strong, you could have had, and you have had, a very successful career as a solo artist. Now, why did you decide to stay with the Eagles? Mm. <laughs> well, first of all, let me just say that it's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here in, in uh, New York City. Uh, Home of, uh, home of country music. Uh, the, the Eagles is just a part of me, you know. Uh, Glenn and I started that band back in 1971, and uh, we did have a little hiatus, you know. We, we parted company for 14 years, and then uh, in 1994 decided that... Uh, uh, realized actually that there was still a demand for our services, and so we um, we we got back together. And it, um, it hasn't always been smooth sailing, but um, as we've gotten older and more mature, and as we've all gotten married and had children, you know that will have a tempering effect um, on your personality. And uh, it, it's it's great to have both a solo career and the career with the Eagles. We, we refer to the Eagles as the mothership. And so we can all go off and do our solo things. And, you know, then we can go back to the mothership. You know, it's a nice mixture because in the Eagles, uh, I'm not the boss. Uh, I'm one of the bosses, but, you know, uh, you can share the burden, you, the blame and praise uh, with your bandmates. But in my solo career, I'm the boss. So I get all the blame and all the praise. Um, and it's a, nice, it's a nice back and forth type thing. And uh, at this point in the Eagles, we're just doing it because we just, it, we're, we're so uh, flabbergasted with how long it's gone on <laughs> that, that it's sort of become uh, a curiosity just to see how long we can get away with it. <laughs> When, when you were a kid, were you in bands? I was. 
I was basically in the same band I, that, uh, with my high school buddies. Mm -hmm. I have a very close friend named Richard Bowden, and I started in a band um, with him and his dad and some other grown-ups. They were, it was a Dixieland jazz band uh, in 1960, late 62 or early 63. And we played uh, instrumental music in my hometown there. Very lucky because we had uh, adults who were willing to nurture us as musicians. They would let us rehearse in their living room until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. Mm. My friend's mother would provide food for everybody. It was, it was quite extraordinary, really, in a town that small. And then, of course, when the Beatles came along in 1964, we said, well, gosh, we got to start singing, you know. Uh, and uh, because we'd done all instrumentals. Um, and so we, uh, what, were the, what were the instruments, like surf music or? Uh, well, in the beginning, it was Dixieland jazz. We had trombone and trumpet oh, and okay. uh, banjo. So it wasn't pop, it was? No, it was, it was a traditional Dixieland jazz. I didn't know that. And then, and then after that, we would do sort of, we had a kid in the band who was an all-state champion trumpet player. And we would do a lot of like uh, Herb Alpert and Bert Camford. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the Knights of Columbus Hall, right. you know. And uh, debutante parties, uh, fraternity parties, clubs in Austin. We wore out two Ford Econoline vans driving all over Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. And we did that for seven or eight years. Wow. Um, so, and played in some clubs uh, where um, we really wished there was the chicken wire, you know, like in the Blues Brothers movie. Yeah, they're, they're, throwing they're, stuff. Yeah. And uh, so we paid our dues. And um, then we got a chance to go to California. Um, and uh, th then things changed. So you really started with an ensemble experience. You weren't up there on your own. being a No, never was. In a band. No. Yeah. Because uh, I started in a band, and I kind of wish I had a, an Eagles, too, so I could... Well, yeah, it, it, it gets lonesome sometimes, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. there's a yeah, thing about working with other musicians that well, you can't replace. You know, when you're in the band, you want to be away from it, and then when you're away from it, you want to be in it. It's one of life's great dualities, I think they call it. Um, so when did you actually start writing songs? Oh, I think my first attempts, which were really awful, uh, were, were around 65 or 66. Okay. And they were actually existing somewhere, 45 RPM records of some of those early songs. We would record them locally in the Dallas, Texarkana area. I'm trying to buy them all back off of eBay. <laughs> You're out there. Uh, yeah, there are a few left, not many. I got most of them, I think, right? But uh, we, we were learning, and, uh, and then, um, you know, then we, we had the chance meeting with Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers, who is from, well, he's identified with Houston, Texas, but he's from actually a, a, from a little town called Crockett outside of Houston. And we met him in the summer of 1968 in a clothing boutique in Dallas, Texas. He was coming through town with his band, The First Edition who were riding high in the charts at that time with a song called Just Dropped In to See What Condition My Condition Was In. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. What? <laughs> what condition my condition was in. It was written by Mickey Newberry. Really? Um, and we were in a, 
clothing boutique in Dallas buying bell bottoms and Nehru jackets. And uh, <laughs> Kenny came in because there was this gorgeous girl working in there. And I, I think he was, you know, after her. Um, and one of the bolder members in my band went up to him and said, hi, we're a local band. And, you know, he introduced himself and said, we're, we started chatting him up and said, we're playing in a club here in town tonight. Would you come hear us play? And he said, yeah. I'm, I, he was looking for groups to produce at the time. And so he came and heard us play. And I guess he liked what he heard because he said, if you'll come to California. He said, I'm busy with my tour right now. This may take a year or two, but if you'll stay in touch with me, mm. you can come to California and I'll produce an album for you. So we went and uh, made an album in 19, first we made a single in 1970, then went back to Texas. Then one of our band members was tragically killed on a motorcycle. Um, and then uh, we regrouped later on and got two more members in the band, went back to L.A., recorded an entire album with Kenny producing it. And it was on a small label called Amos, which also happened to be the label home of a fellow named Glenn Fry and his partner, J.D. Souther. Um, I think Jimmy Bowen was the head of that label. And so we made the album. We were completely green as songwriters, so the album wasn't very good and didn't do anything. Um, so then uh, Glenn and I went to work for Linda Ronstadt at that point. You were Linda Ronstadt's band? Yeah. Pretty much. For, only for about two or three months. What year was that? The spring of 1971. Oh, okay. And that's when we began to plot to have a band of our own. And it was very difficult for me to leave my hometown buddies behind. You know, I, I, I agonized over that for years. Uh, but I wanted, I really wanted to go places and do things. And uh, they wanted to watch television. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm happy to say that I'm still friends with all those guys. And they, they, they turned out they, they did okay. They did all right. A lot of them ended up in Linda Ronstadt's band after Glenn and I left. But I digress. Um, no, no, no. It's your turn. I, uh, I, see, for me, I was uh, moving out to California when you guys were already big, uh, a big L.A. Uh, act. And I thought that you're, the Eagles really pretty much represented that Southern California thing, like the Beach Boys used to do. Mm. And then I found out later that, you know, from Texas and all this stuff. And yeah, no, nobody's from California. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know that. Except our, our current bass player, Timothy B. Schmidt, is from Sacramento. But no, nobody in the band was from California. We were from all over the country. And, you, you know, the, the, the media puts these labels on you, uh, and you have a hard time shaking them off. You know, yeah. I, I, uh, you know you're Mr. New York. <laughs> but, um, you know, we had all the labels, uh, Southern California, the mellow country rock, laid back, you know, all that crap. And, um, but we were an American band. Uh, Glenn is from Detroit, Michigan. Bernie Ledden was born in Minneapolis, raised in Gainesville, Florida. Randy Meisner was from Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Uh, Joe Walsh is from all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Although he, he graduated high school in Montclair, New Jersey. I didn't know that either. Yeah. 
I'm not sure he remembers it. <laughs> but he, he just went back there and played the reunion. So, so. Well, when I, when I went out there, the, you, were, you guys were pretty much the Mount Rushmore band uh, at the time in the 70s. And uh, I was actually trying to write like the Eagles. Uh, there were some great songwriters that you guys worked with, uh, J.D. Souther mm -hmm. and Jackson Brown. Yeah. And um, I became familiar with them through your music. Uh, the singer-songwriter thing was still fairly new back in the, yeah. the early 70s. And I was looking for who the hell I was. I didn't really want to be a singer performer. I wanted to be a songwriter for other people like you guys. Right, you know? yeah. Okay. And, uh, but it, it had a big impact on a lot of people. I, I, point out songs that were trying to be sound like you. Uh, and um, th there again, there's a, I wanted to be in a band, so somebody else was singing. Yeah. Um, well. Like, uh, do, do you think of yourself as a singer or a musician or a writer? What, if you had to, I don't want to put you in a box. <laughs> but no, no box. What do you do? Um. <sighs> Well, it's a question we all have to answer at one time. Well, what do you do? What do you yeah. Do? Well, I mean, the first thing I did was play drums. That was my first instrument, you know, and I was self-taught, basically. Um, so I think I'm a little bit of all those things. It, it took me several years to consider myself as a real songwriter, you know, because I, I, was, I really felt like an amateur for quite some time, mm -hmm. you know, ha having come up uh, around, you know, Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and... and uh, you know, Carol King and, and uh, a lot of the people in that scene, I, I really felt green for quite some time. Uh, now I'm a little more comfortable with the, the term songwriter and, and, uh, and, and singer. Uh, I didn't sing at first either. I had to learn how to sing and play drums at the same time. When, when I was in my, that first little band I was telling you about in, in playing in somebody's living room back at home, we all sort of took turns singing songs. To, we decided one day that we were going to have to sing. So we all just went around the room. We, we each chose a song. I think I chose a Beatles song. Uh, I don't remember what it was now. And um, I sort of got the job, uh, mm. except I was, I was already the drummer. That's a tough one. So I had to teach myself how to sing and play drums at the same time. Uh, and people always ask me, you know, how do you do that? And I said, I, I just didn't know any better. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's more difficult for me to play guitar and sing at the same time. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's harder to, you know, it's a, short, a smaller spot to hit uh, than, than this. I, I was always amazed watching drummers sing. I didn't think that was a possibility. Yeah. It was physically impossible. Yeah. How do you get all that energy and use all the musculature you need and then sing on top yeah, well, of it? I work a lot harder than the other members of the band, and I think I should get paid more. <laughs> I think we should be compensated for that somehow. <laughs> but what was it? Um, now, and this album, I, I listened through to the new album, and uh, it's, I guess, for lack of a better word, your roots. Uh, mm. All the instrumentation is very American. Uh, I hate to say country western because. There's a lot of different kinds of country western, but this is just some cowboy stuff in there. There's uh, traditional bluegrass instrumentation. Yeah. 
songwriting is, is really, really good. I, I don't usually listen to that. I was telling Don uh, just before we came on, it's, we don't hear country western music in New York. We didn't really have country radio, right? You, you didn't hear, you heard a, a Johnny Cash hit, Once in a Blue Moon. Uh, I hear rain like, where's he from? And uh, so we didn't have that. We didn't have any of the, that influence at all. We heard Elvis, who had been influenced by it, but uh, you know, it was kind of through other channels we heard it. But um, the the accent too is was exotic for us here in New York, listening to somebody sing with a southern accent, unless it was uh, a rhythm and blues artist. You sang with Mick Jagger on this new album. Yeah. Did you sing at the same time as Mick in the studio? No. Is there a reason for that? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, but, but going back what, to what you said a minute ago <laughs> uh, about New York and country music, if you'll recall, there was a period, uh, maybe it was in the late 60s or early 70s, where country artists had their own TV shows. You know, Glenn, Glenn Campbell had his own TV show, mm -hmm. um, one of the greatest musicians this country has ever produced. He sang and played on a lot of those early Beach Boys records. Um, Johnny Cash had his own TV show. Um, and then, of course, there was Hee Haw. <laughs> that was the big one, though. That was the big one. And Buck Owens and Roy Clark were on that show. Mm -hmm. So th there, was, there was more exposure back then. But... Um, um, you and I talked about this backstage. Uh, we tend in this country to, to put music in little boxes. You know, we, everything has become formatted and categorized now, and we have to have a box to put it in. So there was a great quandary when I made this album and presented it to the record company. They would say, well, you know, what are we going to... iTunes doesn't even have uh, a category. <laughs> this, is, this is what the concern was, that iTunes... Did, didn't have an Americana category. Uh, so now we have country music. If you, I haven't looked at the Billboard charts in several years, and I was flabbergasted to look at them the other day. There, there are no less than 19 or 20 different charts now. Everything has just been broken into more and more minute, specialized categories. But this album has all kinds of music on it. It has, it has country, pure traditional country music on it. It has music that could be called Americana, mm -hmm. which is the latest. It has some blue, uh, blues music, uh, has some rock music. Um, you know, the famous jazz drummer Buddy Rich said, you all know who Buddy Rich is. And, you, know, you can see him on YouTube cursing out his band members. And, and it's, 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 it's great a, stuff. You, you gotta see it. <laughs> great. You gotta, Buddy said, there are only two kinds of music. Good and bad. Uh, so the record company has been reluctant to put this, this album into a category, um, which is fine with me, because when I was growing up, I was exposed to every kind of music. The, the geographical location in my hometown, which was only... When, when I was growing up, my hometown was 2,500 people. Now it's shrunk to 1,900 people. Um, it's suffering the fate that a lot of small towns across America have suffered. You know, they, first they build the bypass, and everybody whizzes right by. And then the big box stores come in. Um, and, uh, but 
It was a, a cultural and a musical crossroads because it's located in an area where the Old South meets the West. So uh, I was fortunate in that my mom and dad loved music. My mother played gospel piano. My dad liked to sing in sort of a barbershop quartet bass style. And we had radios. And we were able to get bluegrass music from the Ozarks. We were able to get western swing music from out west in Dallas, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. At night, when atmospheric conditions were just right, I could get a radio station in New Orleans, Louisiana, called WNOE. And as you all know, New Orleans is its own musical planet. And I would hear things on that station from New Orleans that I never heard anywhere else before or since. Um, we could get a radio station in Oklahoma called KOMA. And then there was a radio station in Nashville called WLAC that had a DJ who called himself John R. And he spoke uh, like a black man. And everybody thought he was a black man. And he played rhythm and blues and soul and R&B music, you know, rhythm and blues music. But he was, he was a white man. And uh, he, he fooled everybody. But he, the music he played was very important music. And it was music that, that you didn't hear anywhere else. And I was able to get that station at night. For some reason, at night, we could get stations that we couldn't get otherwise. I also got a station uh, that was broadcasting just across the border in Mexico uh, from Del Rio, Texas, with a guy named Wolfman Jack. Uh, uh, so I, I had a very rich radio life. Uh, and my grandfather had one of those big old wooden radios that was shaped sort of like a pyramid. It was a 1930s model. And he would sit around listening to fiddle music and baseball games. Um, my grandmother would sit in her rocking chair singing hymns and Stephen Foster songs all day long. Um, so, you know, the older I've become, the more fortunate I realized I was to be able to be exposed to all this stuff. My dad was in World War II, so he also loved big band music. We had Glenn Miller records in the house, uh, Guy Lombardo. <laughs> My parents even took me to a Lawrence Welk concert <laughs> in Shreveport, Louisiana, when I was a kid. I couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old, and somehow I snuck backstage. I don't know why. I was. Well, I was fascinated by the drummer, for one thing. I was just watching him the whole time. And I walked backstage, and I looked around, and there was Lawrence Welk. And he had groupies. <laughs> he, he was walking around with one on each arm. They were nuns. <laughs> in full habit. And he was just strutting through the backstage area. Uh, and I, I went, wow, okay. So that's what it's all about. <laughs> they, my parents took me to see uh, Hoagie Carmichael in concert when I was a kid in Tyler, Texas. Um, so I was a lucky boy, you know, I really was. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't much going on around there, but my parents somehow, and, and the parents of my friend Richard, made sure that we were exposed to, to musical culture. Um, and uh, I will be forever grateful for that. You're, uh, you grew up in a really interesting part of the country. Uh, it's not very well known by <laughs> the people on the East Coast. It's this corn, East Texas is its own thing. Texas is a huge state. East Texas is pretty different than West Texas. 
And uh, also, you were, you, you, got, uh, you were right next to uh, Louisiana, you had Arkansas, you had Oklahoma, right in that corner where you were. So you were kind of one foot in the Cowboys and one foot in the Deep South. And, yeah. um, that's why I hesitate to call this new album country music. It's American music. It's, there's a lot of traditional music on it. When I first started listening, I'm, uh, I... There's nothing on this album about beer or trucks. Uh, you're ahead of the game there. Yeah. yeah. But I, 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 I listened, I let myself get drawn into this thing. You've achieved what I think is a, a, a great gravitas on this. This is a life. Thank you. Well, you and I both uh, grew up and understand blue-collar working people. You have written and you've done a lot for those people. You've, you've written about the fishermen of Long Island and their plight. You've written about the people in Allentown, Pennsylvania and their plight. Uh, I, in turn, in, in this album in particular, have written about the working people in my part of the country. So I think that's something that we both understand mm. and, and care about. Um, you know, there's, there's a song uh, on, on my album about being a waitress. I've always had a soft spot for waitresses. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, so I think we have common ground in that respect. Right. Um, but I, I tried to avoid a lot of the cliches that we hear in modern country music these days, which I don't even recognize as country music anymore. One of the biggest influences on me growing up was a radio station in Shreveport, Louisiana called KWKH. And I know you're all familiar with the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville, but there was a sister program that was broadcast from Shreveport called the Louisiana Hayride. And it was where Elvis... Elvis, all, all the bad boys, the Opry was kind of pulled up. Whoops, I'm hitting my own microphone. Um, so all the bad boys like Elvis and Hank and Johnny Cash and some of those guys, they wouldn't allow them to play on the Opry. So they would go down to Shreveport and they would allow them on that show. Uh, so that, that program began in 1948. That was the first broadcast and Hank Williams was one of the first performers. Mm. And then six years later, a young man named Elvis Presley would step on that same stage. It was held in the old Municipal Memorial Auditorium in Shreveport. And Elvis played, did his first radio broadcast from that stage there. They had people like George Jones there. They had Kitty Wells, um, um, you know, Red Sovine. Uh, the list goes on and on. So I would listen to that program with my dad uh, when I would go to work with him uh, in the 50s. And uh, that had a big influence on me. Um, and I think the, the program sort of petered out in the 60s, but I think somebody is trying to revive it again and, uh, and, and start it all over. But that was, that was a, a very seminal program uh, back in those days. So, uh, yeah, I, I, got, I got bathed in all kinds of, of, uh, of stuff. But the, the characters in those songs, I, I was buying the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a really good album. It's really Thank very you. good. It's, Thank you. And I was very moved by it. And I don't always know those people, but I, I know the, the type of people you were talking about, the working class people who were having a tough time. You kind of, your persona kind of melded into the characters of these people in these songs, even the songs you didn't write. Yeah. You seemed to become that. And I was you know, brought into a whole life, a tapestry of a whole life here on that album. 
Well, my... Okay, well, get out the violins, because here we go. <laughs> my dad grew up on a corn and cotton farm in a county called Hopkins County in Northeast Texas. And he only went to the eighth grade because in the years leading up to the Great Depression, you know, the, the, you had to quit school. A lot of people quit school in the eighth grade. And he went home to work in the fields with his brother and his father. Um, and his, uh, then he went to World War II. And after World War II, he came home and went into the auto parts business in a town called Dangerfield, Texas, which was 21 miles west of my hometown. And just outside Dangerfield, Texas, was another small town called Lone Star, Texas. And in Lone Star, Texas, there was a steel mill called Lone Star Steel. Um, and that was the economic engine for that entire area. They, that employed a lot of people. My uncle worked at the steel mill, and a lot of my dad's customers worked at the steel mill. And so um, um, people who didn't work at the steel mill would work at a munitions plant um, the Red River, Red River Arsenal, which was up by Texarkana. So a lot of people were employed either at the steel mill or in the um, military industrial complex. And then um, agriculture was still thriving up until, I don't know, the 50s, mid 50s, early 60s. And then that died uh, because of corporate farming. Um, and then uh, now about the only industry we have left is timber. Um, the median family income in the county I come from is $28,500 a year. Mm. So I know those people in those songs. Mm. And, uh, and my, my family were some of them. Um, so I, I hope they ring true. I, I mean, I, I did a lot of the record in Nashville. Uh, some of it was done in Dallas, and some of it, a little bit of it was done in, in uh, Malibu, California, but we don't want to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to my ears, I don't hear it as a Nashville record. I, I just, it's, it's its own thing. It's got some cowboy yeah. in there. Well, it, it's not what Nashville is putting out right now, for sure. Okay. Uh, Nashville is, is uh, I don't know what that stuff is. <laughs> uh, but um, it's, it's lacking authenticity and it's, it's lacking tradition. I mean, we're all standing on the shoulders of somebody mm -hmm. and, and we need to remember who those people are mm -hmm. uh, because radio, unfortunately, has relegated a lot of the country greats like Merle Haggard and George Jones and, and, and uh, Loretta Lynn and, and people from that era They've relegated those people to the Heritage Channel. Right. Uh, Legacy artists. And this is another one of the, the, the drawbacks of all this formatting that's going on. When you and I were young and FM radio was starting out, you could hear everybody on the same channel. Everything. You could hear the Beatles one minute. You could hear Wilson Pickett and James Brown the next minute. You could hear Engelbert Humperdinck the next minute. You know, And you were exposed to a lot of different kinds of music on the same channel. It was great. And it had the effect of broadening your palate. Mm -hmm. And now you only, you can get to tune into one little thing. It's all in these neat little boxes for you. And you listen to that. Same thing with political discourse. You know, in politics now, you never have to listen to anything that you might not disagree with. Mm -hmm. You know, you, they're preaching to the choir. And that's happening all throughout our culture. And I don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for diversity. 
and, and for art or for politics. Um, so um, I'm glad that I was born and raised in the time, and, and you in the time that we came up in. I thought we could have a good, good wave, the best wave, I think, after the war. Yeah, yeah. It was a good time. Something to be said for that. You know, you, uh, I wanted to ask you, did you start out with the, the idea of having this type of music go through the whole album? Was this like a, a concept, or did it just turn out that way? This album? Yeah. No, I thought this through. Okay. From the get-go? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Really? Yeah. Is there an order to the writing, the, of the, the songwriting or the recording sequence? Not really. Well, you, actually, I started out with a cover tune. Right. Sometimes I'll do that to get me motivated, to get me started. I think one of the first things we recorded were um, the Tift Merritt song. I don't know if you all are familiar with her, but she's a wonderful young singer-songwriter from North Carolina named Tift Merritt. Um, and her debut album came out, a debut album in, in 2002, and it was called Bramble Rose. And I heard the title First song, song. Yeah. and I went, that is a great song. I gotta record that song someday. So I just put that in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the cover song I did with Dolly Parton, which is a Leuven Brothers song called When I Stopped Dreamin', uh, was first published in 1955, and I'm sure I heard that song going to work with my dad. I don't know who the first artist to cover it was, but that song stuck in my head forever and ever. You have a video of that, don't you? I have a video of that with Dolly Parton. Can they show? Another high point in my life. She, um, she yeah. graciously agreed to sing on it with me. Give me, give me a second to introduce it here. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do that song. A lot of people have done it, but I wanted to do it. And I knew that she was the only person that could make it work with me. And I called her up. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> is that a phone? And she graciously agreed to come and do it with me. I think Dolly Parton is a national treasure, first of all. I, I... She is the real deal. She's one of the most authentic artists we have left. There is so much history and culture represented in her voice. She's a small person, petite person, but when she opens her mouth to sing and that voice comes out, you hear the history of an entire culture of people who live in the mountainous regions of the eastern part of the United States. You hear the suffering, and you hear the hardship, and you hear the love and the compassion, and all that is encompassed, encapsulated in that voice of hers. And so she came down to the studio in Nashville one day, dressed to the nines, looking like a million bucks, you know, and she had these two little old ladies with her. One of them was her driver, and the other one was her hairdresser. And they showed up, and they both, both the little ladies went to the back of the studio and sat quietly, and Dolly came in. I'd only met her once before, several years earlier, and she, uh, she said, she listened to the song, she goes, I know this song. And I thought to myself, well, I figured, I figured you did. And she said, me and Porter used to do this song. Me and, of course, Porter Wagoner, who was her singing partner for many years. So she went out into the studio, and she sang it a couple of times. She came back in, and she went, well, this key is a little high for me. I said, well, I'm sorry. That's the key we recorded it in. And she said, 
Well, I guess I'll just have to rear back and get it. <laughs> and I knew exactly what she meant. And she went back out into the studio, and two takes later, it was complete and it was perfect. And then she disappeared just as quickly as she had arrived, and me and my, my production team stood there in the studio in silence for about five minutes, just saying, what just happened here? <laughs> um, and then she came and did the video of it with me. She got up out of a hospital bed. She was having some health problems. She's fine now. But she got up out of a hospital bed in Los Angeles, showed up on the appointed day at the appointed time, and said, I'm going to stay here as long as it takes to get this video right. And she did. She stayed there for six or eight hours on her feet and then graciously thanked everybody in the crew and said goodbye and went back to the hospital. So I have nothing but admiration for her. And I've seen her hometown, and it ain't no paradise either. Uh, so, as I said before, that song was written by a couple of brothers called the Leuven Brothers, L-O-U-V-I-N, and they were sort of the predecessors to the Everly Brothers. Uh, they were named Charla, uh, Charlie, Charlie and Ira Leuven. And they were crazy. <laughs> uh, you should, they, there's a book, there's a biography about them, and it's called Satan is Real. <laughs> and, and, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> well, the higher the hair, the closer to God, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, that instrument you were hearing in that song of playing the solo, it's a pedal steel guitar. And uh, I actually used to use it in my recordings, you know, a lot of it on Piano Man and on the Street Life Serenade album. This pedal steel guitar, what the hell am I? Is it? Really? Yeah. yeah, a guy named I, Tom I Whitehorse. Know. Yeah. Huh. And uh, I was just fascinated with that instrument. It was like, oh, it does vocal things. It does weird I don't know things. how guys play it. I don't either. Because everything is moving. You're, both your hands and both your feet. Pedal pedals and... Yeah. And I'm, I'm in awe of people who can play that instrument. It's, it's like a, flying an airplane. It's all bending. Yeah. You know, bending notes. Um, now... There's a song that I always liked that you wrote uh, on the Building the Perfect Beast album called A Month of Sundays. Mm -hmm. I think I told you about this. I, right. I mean, it really got to me, that song. It's just the person in that song, the lyric in that song. It, that's, this album, the, the, that song could have been on this album, that kind of song. Well, that's my version of your Down Easter okay. thing, you know, right. fishermen, farmers, you know. I, but I got it. I mean, I just got that guy. Yeah. Well, if you recall back in the 80s, there was a whole uprising of, of small farmers. They marched on Washington, and, and I went, and uh, protesting, you know, their, their treatment and the fact that, that huge agribusiness was taking over and running all the small farmers out of business. And, and Willie Nelson was, well, that's how Farm Aid was created. You know, Willie Nelson and Neil Young started Farm Aid back during that time. And I've always had a great deal of empathy for them because, as I said, a lot of my ancestors were, were farmers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that song is about that. Um, I hear a lot of that on this album. Yeah. Uh, and there's a song on this, on this new album. It's called Praying for Rain. Right. It's, uh, uh, which I wrote when the drought was really bad in Texas and then it rained like hell for two months. And, and, uh, <laughs> but the people out west, uh, the people out in the southwest, uh, 
are still, as you know, if you, if you turn on the news at night, you know what's going on out west. And it's not good. So, um, but that, the, the song Praying for Rain is the kindest, gentlest, most humble way I could bring up the subject of climate change uh, without pissing off everybody in the red states, uh, 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 which may happen anyway, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to address the subject from the point of view of a humble farmer who knows that something is different because he can see it. He can experience it firsthand, but he doesn't know all the scientific ins and outs. He can't talk about it in scientific terms. Um, so it's a very effective song. It reminded me of uh, Jimmy Webb did with Wichita Lineman. Yeah. A humble, poor ins man who thinks of himself as insignificant, saying very, very noble things, significant things. There's an instrument on the song Praying for Rain that I just, that I, I didn't discover it, but I only w witnessed it being played a few years ago at a bluegrass festival in Kansas. And it's called the Hammered Dulcimer, which is a mountain instrument that's indigenous to the mountainous portions of this country. And it's a dulcimer that you play with these little wooden spoons. And it makes the most marvelous, happy <laughs> sound. Mm. And so we used it on uh, Praying for Rain to create the sound of rainfall. It sounds like a, a, sh a shower. Mm. And oddly enough, in my research, I found that there's an entire community of hammer dulcimer players uh, all around Dallas, Texas. You know, so there were a lot of little surprises <laughs> making this album. The pedal steel guitarist who played on most of the songs in this record is just an, an obscure guy from Dallas. Mm -hmm. and the guy's a genius. He's, He's just good. been sitting in Dallas for like 30, 40 years playing in little pickup bands. Um, and now he's in my band. Uh, <laughs> and so, That's good. But, That's a good thing uh, for him. But thank you for mentioning that song, uh, because a, a, a month of Sundays, because a lot of people haven't heard that. <laughs> You gotta, if you have the album, Building the Perfect Beast, or if you don't, go out and get it. If you can get them anywhere anymore. It was kind of tacked on the end as a bonus track or something like that. It was a good bonus. Thank you. Real good bonus. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, as I'm listening to you talk, I don't know if you thought this, he kind of talks in a, you've got a pretty full baritone when you're just talking with your speaking voice, but you hit, you're a tenor when you sing. Yeah, I know. You're up in the stratosphere. Are you having a hard time Staying a tenor? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you hit these notes, I can't even imagine some of the notes you hit. Yeah, well, it's these days here at 68, some days I can hit them and some days I can't. Well, what do you do? Do you change keys? Yeah. Do you sing falsetto? Sometimes. I don't like doing that, though. So you got to throw some, you know, weird pitches now and then. Sometimes you just, you know how, you know, you just will your way through it. Yeah, but you, you, though, I never hear you change keys on anything. You know, you, you've kept your voice. I don't want to change keys. No, you change keys. <laughs> I, I try to do like a half tone, yeah. but it makes a big difference. It does, half a step, yeah. And yeah, we've lowered, I think we've lowered Boys of Summer. God knows I can't sing that in the original key anymore. Um, you, you know, you do what you have to do. You but know, you I, need I the edge. You mean, like you're reaching the strain yeah. and all that stuff? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, well, sometimes when you're in the studio, you can sing in a higher key because you don't have to, you, when you're on the road, week after week after week, your mm -hmm. voice gets tired, and, and you have to make these little compromises in order to, in order to, to do your job. Because 
Well, what, what do you do? What comes first, words or music? Oh, you know the answer. No, I know <laughs> how you do it. Um, it. Either or. Really? Yeah. So you've written both ways. Both ways. Usually words first, but the strange thing happens. Sometimes words and music will come at the same time. That's like a blessing. I'll get a hook or a chorus, mm -hmm. and there will be a melody that comes with it. Um, and, and that's good. That's real good. I love those. Or <laughs> you know how it is. But it, it comes all different ways. Sometimes, sometimes you start with a hook, you know, with the, with the title of the song. Or sometimes some random line will come to you that belongs like in the middle of the song somewhere or a bridge. And then you write, you write outwardly from there. Yeah. There's no... I, 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 I do. No, but I mean, to, to get the words and the music at the same time, uh, that's how it happens so rarely. It's like an epiphany. You know, yeah. on the road to Tarsus. <laughs> okay, thank you. You could be a one-hit wonder with my, those. My process is very random, you know, and, and intuitive. And, 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 and I'm not very organized. I was reading an, an article the other day about this, this kid named Jason Isbell, who's very very talented uh, young artist. And he does the same thing I do. He, he says he'll write things down on scraps of paper and he'll put them in a box, <laughs> like a cardboard box. And just... Randomly. And, yeah, instead of neatly writing things down on the legal pad, you know, which I should do, I never have a ballpoint. You know, I'm never. <laughs> you would think that a writer would carry like a ballpoint and, you know, the legal pad. But I, I write things down on random bits of paper and I put them in a cardboard box. And then when it comes time to make an album, I go get the box. And, and they're, not, not even, they're not even all the same song, they're like bits of different songs. That's a good technique. Yeah. It, it, Thank you. It works. I say whatever works. I, for, I, for you. Yep. Everybody's got their own. Uh, it's way my of filing. Doing. My filing system. How do you do it? You sit down at the piano, of course. Yes. Because you can play. I play the music first. I come up with musical ideas, not words. Okay. Uh, Sometimes we do that. I'll, you know, I'll either come up with a chord thing or some of my musician friends that I work with who are much better musicians than me will actually record a track with drums and bass and the whole bit on there and just send me a track. Oh, really? And that's fun because the music will tell you what to say sometimes, you know, right? You get the pictures and the, you get the whole movie from the, from the music itself. There's a mood in there, yeah. There's yeah, a, it's all You have to in decode. There. Yeah. That's, well, that's my technique is I'll write music and I, why the hell did I write that? Right. What was I saying? What was I feeling? What was the yeah. mood? What's in that? Yeah. I got to break my own well, code. You, you can box yourself in sometimes. Oh, I paint myself into the corner all the time. <laughs> so, you know, brilliant, Bill. Yeah. Now you got to work, you know. But because um, sometimes the words don't fit into those bars, you know, those little spaces that, that you create. So you have to... But so you do it all different ways. It, all different ways. You take it however you can get it. Hmm? You take it however it comes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'll take it any way I can get it. Okay. Um, I was going to ask him. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot. But, uh, I, you know, I, I've been asked a little time, why don't you make more albums? Why don't you make, uh, write more songs? And I, I kind of lost... All right, thanks. <laughs> I actually kind of lost the desire to write songs. Now, I listened... To one of the biggest thoughts was going through my head when I was listening to this album. If I could write stuff as well-conceived and concise and musical and literate and good as Don Henley, maybe I'd want us to... Oh, get out. No, no, it's true. 
It's very true. You're st- You know, you're still doing it. You haven't had an album out in, what, 15 years? Yeah, but... I mean, what... Where'd it come from? How, did you get up the gumption? And- I, I write all the time, you know. And, you know, a little bit every week. And I, like I said, I jot it down, put it in that box. Um, but I'm always thinking about songs. The, the reason... You know, you, uh, it's easy to start songs, and as you know, it's hard to finish finish them. You know, it's somebody once. Well, I think it was, uh, Thomas Edison said it about genius. He said, "It's genius is ten uh, percent inspiration and ninety percent perspiration." Um, so it's easy to get inspired and get an idea. The hard part is sitting down and grinding out the rest of it. You know, because it doesn't come to you all in one big blinding flash. But I'm writing stuff all the time. I just don't have time to finish it because of that other band I play and it never gets off the road. Uh, <laughs> and, and plus I have three teenagers at home and parenting them is very important to me. So um, I have to just make little spaces in between, you know, Eagles touring and parenting and, and find these little windows to, to write things. You know, I've, I've got legal pads. I still use legal pads. I like to do it the old-fashioned way. Uh, I can't do it on the computer, really. It just no, it's not, it's no, not it doesn't seem right. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you uh, did you uh, do a lot of singing in church when you were a kid? Hymnals and all that stuff. No, I did a lot of talking in church. <laughs> <laughs> drawing dirty pictures in the hymnals and talking. <laughs> really, you didn't you didn't sing on the hymns. You didn't like singing hymns in church. I mean, I would sing sometimes when we, when the whole congregation sang. I would sing, I would sing. If, you know, turn to the page and sing. But, yeah, I mean, the stuff I'm writing is more, it's, it's music, it's not songs. It could be songs. But. Yeah, well, you'll get around to it. <laughs> it's, it's not writer's you know, block. It's, I'm writing music all the time. It's, I, never, it's never too late. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And it, it, it's... You see, doctor, but... <laughs> oh, my God, when I was a kid. I mean, I mean, look at Leonard Cohen, you know? I mean, he's, he's still do, doing it, you know? Uh, but... And then there's, and there's, there's the, the problem of, of... You know, I used to think, and it's a tradition here in the West, to think that songwriting or great, or great art of any kind has to come out of pain and suffering, you know? But I've learned that that's not really the case at all uh, you know in the east there's more of a tradition, a tradition of, of great art coming out of uh, balance and realization you know there was a whole there was a podcast about this not too long ago on a, on a, a web a site called forgive me on being um, and and they talked about great art and where it comes from and, and they talked about that very thing, about how artists in the West think it's all got to be about suffering and, and pain, and, and where in the East there's more of a sense of enlightenment. And, and you know, um, uh, Alice Walker made an interesting comment. She said, I used to think that, that all great poetry and art had to come out of suffering and discontent and all that. And she said, I was, I was taught that by Langston Hughes, who believed that himself. And she said, but as I got older, I realized that I was getting happier but I was still writing. 
and writing very well. And then they, they pose that same question to, to the Dalai Lama about does all great art have to come out of suffering? He didn't even understand the question. <laughs> he goes, no, the, the, the thing that gives great art value is, is the transformative is the transformation that the artist went through to create it, you know? Did the artist become kinder, more enlightened, you know? And, and he said, I think that what we want from our artists is not their misery, but their courage. And, and uh, um, he, he said, what makes a piece of art valuable is, is what the artist went through to create that piece of art. And that's, that's how we find value in it. Um, it's the sacrifice and the courage and that the artist had to, to do that that piece of art, and and I'm starting to get to the, to that mm -hmm. place um, where I can I can still write it. I love a sad song, as my sweet friend Tricia Yearwood said. I love dark, depressing songs. They make me happy. <laughs> uh, so. And the other thing about rock and roll is rock and roll has always been associated with rebellion. But I think rock and roll is a form of creating community. I think popular music is all about community. You know, in the old days, it was gathering around the radio to listen as a family. Uh, these days, it's, you know, dedicating a song to a loved one who may be far away. But it's the radio and music is, is the tribal drum that we all gather around, you know, and... Uh, so when I write songs, I think about community and I think about all the people that are going to be hearing that song and thinking about how it relates to their lives and what it means to them. And that makes me feel like I'm a part of, of the larger, of, of, of something, of the whole. Mm -hmm. So, and that, that, that is a really good motivation for me is, is, is that thought of community. Um, and then, of course, you have to hope the radio plays the damn thing, you know. And, and, but, uh, but you're not done. No, no. I we, we, need, we need some of your stuff right now. But it's, it's, uh, you and I have been threatening to write together for... for what was... That was my next question. I, I have the question here. Okay, uh, I, I, I've, I've never stopped writing music. I've, I've been writing music, uh, musical pieces for the last 20 some odd years now. Uh, but you know, like when you were talking about, you know, it's finishing the song, that's the hard part. Um, I didn't want to stop and write the lyrics. I just wanted to keep writing music and right. writing music. I love music. And the words kind of like, oh, okay, I'll, maybe I'll get to that, maybe I won't. Well, that's, but that's the hard part. Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, so I stopped having the desire to write songs because of that. But I would be willing to work with a collaborator who <clears throat> was as good as you. And if, if that's ever any interest to me, to you, to okay. let me know. Again, it's about, well, you're going to be busy now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I will. But I feel no, like it's, it's, if we can find mutual windows... You know, it, it, uh, in between our... That's the hard part, too. It's, yeah, it's the time and the, and the geographical distance, but right. there, there are airplanes and there... Well, you know, phone, I've written songs on the phone with people before, you know. And 
computer, on the internet. That's, that's, that, that's, that thing. That, that, that's the other thing. Speaking of the internet, the one thing I don't know about you, but that makes it hard for me to write or to get into the space to write is all the clutter, all the, the modern day clutter that comes at us from, from the computer, the cell phone, the television. The, the, it's just all coming at you all the time. And it's really hard to get in a quiet space so that you can think and so that you can, you can get in touch with the muse or the, the, the channels to your subconscious or wherever this, I don't know where this stuff comes from. But, but that's become the hardest part for me is, is clearing a space in this modern technological information world where all this... And most of it, most of the stuff that comes at us is it's completely useless anyway. You know, it's um, I've, I've I don't turn the TV on nearly as much as I used to. Because I just don't want to. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Um, so it, it's about clearing out a space and making you really you literally have to make the time. You have to create it. Sometimes you have to do some strange things to get to that place. Yeah, yeah. You become a different person sometimes. Also, I find, I don't know about you, but I find that writing songs, it, it, what works for me is to do some simple task, some zen-like thing, like loading or unloading the dishwasher, for example. <laughs> I'm, ser I'm dead serious. I've written some of my best stuff, loading and unloading the dishwasher. <laughs> because you're... You're distracted, and yet you're not. I don't know how to explain this, but and I've and I've read, you know, Zen masters talking about the, the same sort of thing. If you can just do a menial task instead of sitting there with a pen and paper in front of you, going, <clears throat> you know, you can't squeeze these things out. You know, you you well, you can at the end. You, the last the last ten percent, you sort of have. But, but just, just doing something simple. Shower's good. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you know. <laughs> you, get, you, get the clean, you get the clean dishes and you get, you know. Um, I feel I should, I should be asking these Jim Lipton kind of questions, you know. That, yeah. And then there well, was. That's what it feels like. This sunset grill. <laughs> But uh, I, I'm, I'm now. You don't feel like James Lisman to me. No, no, no. Shoot. Uh, well, we have some questions from the audience, actually. Uh-oh. Uh, they've got some interesting questions here. This is not what we were talking about, but it, well, maybe it is. If you could have one redo in life, <laughs> what would it be? Oh. <sighs> redo. the vocal on the original <laughs> recording of Desperado. Really? <laughs> What's, yeah, what be, bugs you about it? Because that was recorded in London, England in a cavernous studio with the London Symphony Orchestra. Uh, live? Uh, yeah, yeah. Was live with the orchestra, you were singing live? Yeah, and wow. I was terrified. I bet you were. And 
That's inexpensive. And they were just bored shitless. I mean, they were just, they, they were. Um, and as I'm sure some of you know, our, our producer was a British superstar producer named Glenn Johns, who is still a friend of mine, I think. And, <laughs> but he wouldn't allow us to do more than four or five takes, you know. That's it. Off you go. And and so I was nervous, and there were a lot of these old guys in the symphony, and they were sitting there, and they were so bored because the the string part is not exactly, you know, it's it's not Beethoven or you know, it's not not bad. It's no, it's no, it's okay. It it serves it serves the song, Uh, and they had brought chess boards with them. And they had set the, each pair of players would set a chessboard up between them. And when we weren't doing takes, they would play chess. <laughs> this. <laughs> That's how bored they were. And, you know, I would, once in a while I would hear a remark from back in, back in, I don't, I don't feel like a desperado. <laughs> So, so that vocal was not my best work, and I wish I had a chance to do it again, but that's okay. L- Linda Ronstadt did it just, just fine. So that, that's it's a great song. It really is a great song. But you, you nailed it. You nailed it a long time ago. You said that's Stephen Foster, and that's what it is. So it reminds me of, absolutely. Yeah. We played it together. We were at Jones Beach at, at, at the theater. <laughs> but I threw in a couple of gospel jumps. You gave me the dirtiest look on stage. <laughs> yeah. Desperate. Why don't you go there? <laughs> turned around and glared, man. No. Scared the hell out no. of me. No. No. no, I like to keep it simple. What else? Um, let me see. Some good questions here. Oh, I had a question about the Nashville thing. There's, there's a place called Allentown, Nashville. It's on the, it's on the album notes. It's what? Allentown, Nashville. And oh, yeah, to... yeah. Where is that? Yeah. Uh, well, that has nothing to do with the town that you wrote about. It's, it's, um, it was renamed. It's a little house on Music Row. Um, it was like a little three-story house that used to be called uh, Jack's Tracks. Recording studio. It mm-hmm. had a basement, a main floor, and an upper floor with some offices. And then Garth Brooks bought it, and he renamed it Allentown after an engineer oh. named Allen Sides. Okay, I think I've seen it actually. Yeah, just a little yeah nondescript house okay. sitting on a corner. It was a great place to work because there was nobody there but us. You know, we had the whole place to ourselves. And when I ran out of lyrics, I would run upstairs and sit in one of the offices for several hours and write while the guys were working on edits and things downstairs. So that's what that was. Okay. Um, are there songs you'd written and recorded you wish you could take back? <laughs> I have them. Just wondering if you had them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most of them are pre-Eagles. Uh, some of that stuff I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, before, before I knew what I was doing. Nobody knows that stuff. Yeah, well. I, you know. There are these collectors, you know, these like, these, these fanatic people that go on the eBay. Um, I'm, I'm not completely happy. I mean, there are songs on the first two or three Eagles albums that have, 
portions of them that I thought could have been better, you know, not necessarily the song as a whole, but, but a lyric here and there or a melody or, or something that I listen to now and go, eh, well, we, we should have done this or should have done that. But, you know, that's, it's sort of pointless at this point, you know. It's, yeah, you have to stop somewhere. Yeah. Stop second-guessing yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, you have always been defending the rights of musicians and songwriters uh, in the music biz. Uh, he, he, this guy's like calling me. Did you know they're going to take away this from you? They're going to do this. What? What are you talking about? Um, you know, when there's legis legislation uh, that can hurt musicians, he's on top of it. This guy is there. And uh, I'm very grateful for that. And a lot of people who maybe not know that you do that, should be grateful to you, too. Are you still looking out for us that way? Sometimes. Um, it's... Musicians... Uh, are, as a, as a group, are, are very naive about the way the business works, oh, yeah. especially in terms of government. And... Uh, you know, I've tried on a number of occasions to, to organize musicians and, and get something done in Washington, but it's, it's like trying to herd cats, you know, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, you've always been responsive and some of the other, you know, some of us in our generation who understand uh, how things work, but the younger musicians, you know, and their managers and their lawyers don't explain it to them, you know, they don't want to rock the boat. And so we find ourselves in a position now where uh, we're losing more and more of our rights. Uh, we find ourselves in a position where copyright is soon not going to mean much of anything. Um, intellectual property. Uh, Did you file, by the way, for album return? Uh, we're, yeah, I'll talk to you about that later. <laughs> um, you we're going to on a couple of them that are qualified. but. Okay. But musicians are incredibly naive and, and incredibly reluctant to go to Washington and, and sit in a Senate hearing. It's very intimidating. And you really have to know what you're talking about. And, and, and most of us, with having an artistic temperament and being, being right-brained people, uh, don't understand the complexities um, of the business. And we're paying for it. You know, the record industry slept through the digital revolution, and we're paying a high price for it now. Um, very soon, uh, if not already, uh, an album will only be a promotional tool for a concert tour. There is really little or no money to be made in making records anymore um, because it all gets stolen on the internet. Um, I could go into a whole rant about Google uh, and how they are one of the big enablers, um, but I'm not um, because that would take way too much time and it's not going to change anyway but when google spends <laughs> just want to get this in when google spends between 11 and 13 million dollars a year on lobbying uh it's very hard to compete with that um you know so um you know i don't know where it's going you know i tell my son not to really plan on going into any industry in which the product can be digitized. Um, and it's not just music, it's newspapers, magazines, you all know if any of you are in the publishing industry, uh, film, same thing. Uh, it's all being taken because there's a mindset among younger people that anything on the web is there for the taking. It's free. 
They don't think about what it costs to make that product and how many people are employed by that industry. Uh, in the music industry, there are literally millions of jobs that depend on one thing, the worth of the popular song. Uh, and when the popular song is not worth anything anymore, physically speaking, then uh, a lot of jobs are going to disappear. You know, you know from, from truck drivers to accountants to, you know, well, you name it, people who make guitars, all the way up the line. So, <clears throat> you know, I've tried several times to organize, as you well know, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's, you just finally, after a while, you throw up your hands. Frank Sinatra tried to organize the music industry. Uh, in, back in his day and, and failed. Um, so, you know, when you're up against the, the internet service providers and you're up against a behemoth like Google, I'm, I'm fond of saying we now live in the United States of Google. And their hand, I use them every day, you know. I, I, but but um, they're, uh, they're really helping to wreck, to wreck uh, our industry. Um, but let's see if we can end on a more positive note. <laughs> Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it's true. I mean, everyone in the music industry that I have ever met or talked to has a horror story about some kind of ripoff that happened to them. Yeah. And it's like people who, you know, having house construction, everybody's got a harsh story. Oh, house construction. Oh, boy. Let me tell you, they were longer than it took and more than it should have. And oh, I hate the guy. And, <laughs> but yeah. musicians but, all have that. Nobody gets away clean. No. Well, you have to understand that Google owns YouTube, you see. And, uh, you know, for some young artists, they want to be on YouTube. I mean, they want to be there, and they, and they, want, they think they're going to get discovered. And, and, you know, once in a blue moon, some artist will actually break through on YouTube and get discovered if they do something extraordinary. But, but by and large, it's, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the haystack keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All right, we got to... We get a chance Let's move to along. end on a happier note here. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's a chance to rectify something. Can you please tell us if a misunderstood Eagles or Don Henley song? This is your chance to rectify. A misunderstood. Misunderstood. Wow. <laughs> Hotel California. Oh. <laughs> what? Oh, Hotel California. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that going around. Well, yeah. You know what that's about? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I don't know if it's misunderstood or just, or just not understood. Well, the, the, you, you know the story about that. It's, you know, there was, some, there was some radical evangelical group in Oklahoma that were putting out all this stuff about the you know, we'd all been members of the Church of Satan uh, under Anton LaVey in the Bay Area, and, and we wrote that song while we were members of the Church of, of Satan. And, uh, <laughs> see, that's, that's, that's what happens in Oklahoma. <laughs> that's where that came from. Um, and then one time back in the early days, we got a letter. Uh, letters used to come to the record company. After we put out Desperado, we got a letter from a guy who who uh, was very sure that Desperado was about the Symbionese Liberation Army. <laughs> if you remember them, they're the people that captured Patty Hearst. And, uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> P 
people, there's some crazy people out there. Uh, I mean, you have no idea. Uh, um, so yeah, you get the, you, you get, you get them, you get letters, you get those. Do you read that stuff? Uh, Billy, Willy, Nilly, Silly, Gilly, Dilly, Philly, yeah. yeah. Uh, I read it just for amusement sometime and, and also to, to try to figure out whether I should give it to the security people. Yeah. Or, or not. I'm always trying to decipher the handwriting. That's nice. Yeah. Well, there's a certain style that you can recognize immediately. There's a certain scrawl that I, when I see it now, I recognize immediately. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That, yeah, that I'm, I'm dealing with a psychopath. Yeah. They are, it's, 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 very, it's, it's very recognizable. How'd you first get involved with the Walden Woods project? <clears throat> we just celebrated our 25th year, um, by the way, back in May. I started that thing <laughs> in, uh, in 1990, uh, partially as a result of my education. I was a, an English major. I was introduced to the writings of Henry David Thoreau uh, by my beloved high school English teacher, Margaret Lovelace, um, who, who I hear still talking to me over my shoulders when I'm writing something and I make a grammatical error or a punctuation mistake. Um, um, and I, I think she introduced me to Thoreau and Emerson, and then I studied in them some more in college. So that coupled with the fact that I grew up mostly outdoors in the rural area that we have talked about uh, just gave me a great love of nature. And um, Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a great essay called Self-Reliance. I'm sure some of you have read it. It's a brilliant piece of writing one of the great American essays, I think, of all time. It's kind of long-winded, but if you can make your way through it, it's, it's well worth it. And um, when my father became ill with heart disease in the um, mid-60s, I turned to the works of Thoreau and Emerson for solace and, and uh, comfort. Um, and I was also struggling to become a songwriter. And uh, there are some lines in Emerson's essay on self-reliance that were very encouraging. Uh, one of the lines is, to believe in your own thought, to believe that what is true for you in your private heart is true for every man, that is genius. And then it goes on from there. And I thought, hmm, okay, so I'll start listening to myself. Uh, mm. And... Uh, so those, those, those two guys got me through some really tough times, and I, um, I read Walden from cover to cover. Walden is a tough read because it's written in this sort of stilted style of, of the late 19th century. And, uh, but there are some gems of wisdom in there. And Thoreau is noted, it's known all over the world. His, his writings influenced uh, Gandhi. When you see the movie Gandhi, and you see Gandhi getting kicked off the train. He's got a little paperback book under his arm, and that book was Walden. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. has talked about how much Thoreau's writings on civil disobedience influenced his actions during the civil rights movement. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer, was influenced by Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, 
So these were, these were works that meant a great deal to me. So to make a long story short, I don't want to go on and on about this. Sometime in December of 70, no, 89, I was watching television. I was watching CNN um, in my house in Los Angeles. And I heard two guys come on television. I heard, I heard the words Walden Woods mentioned. You all know where Walden is. It's up in Concord, Massachusetts. It's by the pond, uh, visited by 600,000 people a year from all over the world. Um, and I heard the words Walden Woods. So I walked over to the TV set and I saw these two kind of dorky looking guys standing in the woods. And they were talking about how um, the pond and the woods were in danger because a developer who was from New York and whose name I will not mention, um, um, was going to build was going to build an office park, which is one of my favorite oxymorons, office park. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, only a few hundred yards from the pond on a historic portion of Walden Woods. So I walked near the television set. I got their names. Next day, I called directory assistance, found one of them called him up, talked to him, and said, I'd like to come up and help you save this piece of land that you're trying to save. He didn't know who I was from Adam, uh, you know, which was fine with me, actually, which was, was a, good, a good thing. So I ended up flying up there in March of 1990. And this fellow, who was a local scholar, um, I flew up there with a couple of my good friends, uh, Betsy Kenny Lack and Danny Goldberg, two of the smartest people I know, and they went with me. And we had what I would term a very frosty <laughs> tour of Walden Woods. It was March. There was ice all over the ground. Um, and this guy just led us through the woods. You know, we, were, we had on our city shoes, and we were crunching through the ice and snow. And um, took a tour of the woods, and he showed us the property that was in danger of development. Very historic site. And then I decided to go to Senator, uh, Senator Edward Kennedy's office and see if I could get some help there. And while I was there, I met a woman named Kathleen Anderson, who had been uh, Kennedy's top staff person in his Massachusetts office for 13 years. And she said, I know the two guys that you met. They're trying to save these woods. She said, they're not going to be able to do it. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the connections to do it. She said, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to start your own nonprofit organization. Little did I know uh, what I was getting myself into. But we did it, and she left her post with Senator Kennedy. He was very gracious about it. He let her go. She became my executive director. We founded the nonprofit organization, and we have spent the last 25 years preserving land around the pond. We have preserved now a total of 160 acres, which doesn't sound like much in the scheme of things, but when you consider that the entirety of Walden Woods is only 2,680 acres. And when you consider that there are several other land conservation organizations in the area, including the state, we have now been able to preserve about 87% of historic Walden Woods. And the job is not finished, so please send in checks if you can, because raising money these days is, is 
as my friend Bette Midler will tell you, raising money for these kinds of things is very difficult because there are a lot of competing charities that are very worthy, and it's, it's a hard job. But we're not done. There's one more parcel, just one more critical parcel that we need to get. Uh, and then our land conservation efforts will be done. But we still have educational programs for students and teachers who come from all over the world. We have a retreat for teachers every year that lasts two weeks. Teachers come from everywhere in the United States and spend two weeks with us at our headquarters. Uh, a lot of them are experiencing burnout because they're underpaid and underappreciated and they come and stay with us for two weeks and get to walk around where Henry Thoreau got to walk around and it renews their spirit and their passion for teaching again. Um, we have programs for inner city kids who have never been in the woods and they come out and help clear trails and walk around, swim in the pond. Uh, we do a lot of good things. We have the largest collection of Thoreau-related material in the world in a climate-controlled archive. We are restoring our headquarters now, which is on the National Register of Historic Places. It's a 105-year-old house. Um, so we do a lot of good things up there. So I invite any of you who would like to come up for a visit to come up and see us in Con We're Actually, we're in Lincoln, just across the border from Congress. <clears throat> you put together a nice uh, benefit concert in Boston. Too. Yeah, and you have helped me with how many have you done now for me? Two or three? Yeah. Yeah. Two or three. <laughs> yeah. But I never got to thank you, by the way, because uh, the last time you had asked me to come and play at the benefit, uh, I had just broken up with somebody, and I met this girl at the show, and I really had a nice six months after that. I never got to say thanks. Okay. We're actually, we're out of time. That's it. Well, that's why Thoreau said, I went to the woods. Because I wished to see, you know, what life had to teach. And to confront only the essential facts of life and not when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So I'm glad you met that girl and had a good time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, see how things work out. Anything you want and, to plug? And, and, before and we leave? I understand that Bette Midler is here, and I want to thank her for the wonderful work that she's done. And thank you for what you've done for me and for the Walton Woods Project and what you've done for this, this wonderful city here. And, and uh, she knows that it's hard work. Um, so anyway, the Walton Woods Project continues. Uh, you know, people, people think we're done, but we're not done. You know, there's, there's still some things to complete. Um, and we could use all the help we can get. Um, but it's been, it's, it's, really enriched my life in ways that I'd, I would have never thought. Uh, just a few weeks ago, we hosted a man from I Iran who discovered Thoreau somehow in his country and fell in love with Thoreau's work 
and is in the process of translating Walden into um, the Iranian language. Whatever. Uh, thank Farsi, thank you. And, and some of us got together and bought him a plane ticket to come over. And he came to the Walden Woods Project and he got to walk around in Walden Woods and see all the places that he had dreamt of and, and read about. And he is so articulate, and, and so it was one of the most wonderful experiences. It just shows you the power of the written word, shows you the power of literature, that it can reach across, just like music, across national boundaries, across cultural boundaries, across political boundaries, and bring people together. Um, so uh, you can read about our little visit with that fellow on, on the, the Walden Woods website. It's just walden.org. It's easy to find. Uh, so that was one of the highlights for me. Um, and, and getting to meet uh, writers who support us like E.L. Doctorow and E.O. Uh, uh, e. Wilson and David McCullough and people like that who have been some of our biggest supporters. So it, it's certainly had a, uh, an enriching effect on my life. And thank you for bringing it up and for your help. Thanks for doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, Don Henry. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.